We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. You know, it's amazing. We look at the way technology and information has changed so rapidly, and we see the growing face of the demographics in our nation today, uh, certainly uh, most notably in a state like California, Somebody had a comment to me the other day, you know, for much of the early history of the United States up until uh, probably the last 50 or 60 years, and and to a great degree it continues to this day, though not as prominently, uh, America had been the biggest and most active sending nation in terms of sending nations or sending individuals overseas to the nations to bring about uh, the um, dissemination of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've learned in more recent years that uh, while that can be effective, uh, even more still, it's effective to help train nationals because not only is it um, better stewardship from the economics of it all, but then, too, you're not having to call upon individuals to suddenly immerse themselves in a new culture, a new language, new surroundings, which takes some time for acclimation before you can really become effective at what you're doing in terms of ministering to people on the ground in country. With all of that said, a buddy of mine the other day made the observation. He says, you know, with the changing demographics of America and the way the Internet uh, has has made this um, spinning sphere of ours called planet Earth so small, it's almost as if the world has come to us. And in many degrees, it has. And this is a, perhaps a renewed opportunity for we as the church, the body of Christ, to understand the rare and unique opportunity that we have to uh, share the good news, to share that hope. Uh, and the and the good news of the answer that we have through Christ Jesus. With that thought in mind, when we talk about um, the world and we get down to the missiology of of a Christian worldview, what exactly is that? What do we mean by that? Well, with some in-depth look at how to become a world-class Christian, becoming a part of God's global kingdom, we're joined now by a best-selling author, Paul Brothrick. And uh, Paul, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks, Greg. Good to be out on the West Coast, at least by voice. Yeah, I must say, I, I guess welcome back. As I understand it, the last time that you were out here, uh, unless there's an in-between trip that I hadn't heard about, the last time you were out in our fair city, there was a whole lot of shaking going on. Oh, I think I've had a few trips in between. You have, okay. I was, <laughs> I was there during uh, the October 1989 shake-up. Uh, I think it was in 89, wasn't it? Or was it 91? 1989, October 17th, to be precise. I was down at the Hyatt Regency Burlingame at a conference. I was teaching at about 5.15, and the room began to shake. Of course, I thought it was the Holy Ghost coming upon us, but it <laughs> uh, turned out to be an earthquake, which was my first and only earthquake experience. I'm from the Boston area all my life, and uh, so it was quite an unusual experience, to say the least. 
Well, we're, we're pleased uh, to have the distinction of uh, having provided you with your first and, and hopefully only experience in, in such matters. But it, it's interesting as we start our visit tonight, uh, Paul, with a reference to uh, the, the ground shaking. We've certainly seen a lot of that, too, in the spiritual realm, haven't we? You know, I made, made reference in my opening remarks to how the world is getting so much smaller and how that in many respects, as we had been uh, the, the largest and most active sending nation in terms of sending missionaries overseas, how that in many respects, the world is now coming to us. Absolutely. And, you know, outside of the actual time that Jesus walked the earth, I actually can't think of a time in Christian history that's more exciting to be alive than today. Partly because all those American and European lives that got laid down as uh, martyrs for Christ, you know, a century and a, or 50 years ago, uh, their lives have brought forth fruit, and now you have uh, the whole church, as the saying goes, taking the whole gospel to the whole world. And uh, it's just a staggering thing. And as I think you quoted earlier, uh, the world has come to us. And I was reading not too long ago a statistic that said the United Nations is citing the fact that the United States is the only country on Earth with someone from every other country on Earth living in it. Hmm. And, we, you know, when we used to have to go to some really difficult places, in many respects, many of us can reach the unreached peoples of the world simply by reaching out to the, uh, you know, our Muslim co-worker or the, uh, the Buddhist guy who's down the street or the Hindu who happens to be my medical doctor. I mean, you know, it's, it's amazing how the world has changed. We sit here with these devices in the palm of our hand that allows us to text, email. Uh, we can look up uh, websites anywhere around the globe. I think we certainly today, as, as Americans, have got a pretty good understanding of what it means to be globally connected. But I have to wonder, though, Paul, from a Christian perspective, um, as much as the, the technology has advanced quite nicely, has the theology kept up with it, meaning uh, as, as we understand what it means to be globally connected, do Christians really understand also what means to be uh, globally concerned? I think that's, a, that's an excellent question, um, and I think obviously the answer is going to vary according to the Christian you talk to. The, the sad reality is that technology has given us access to more knowledge than any of us can possibly handle. And as a result, uh, we can become either numb to it or we just shrug it off and say, I can't do anything, I can't make any difference at all. And, uh, you know, you mentioned this book, Being a World-Class Christian. Um, it, it's really about trying to help people see that, you know, you might not be able to change the world, but you might be able to do something of global significance right in your own community, right in your own neighborhood, or at your workplace, or something like that. But I think you're right. It's, technology has made it uh, so overwhelming that, you know, you, you, you go live to the tsunami in Sri Lanka, and by the third day of seeing it, you're just numb to it, because you can't really do that much about it, and it's just another news report to you after a while. And I think that's, you know, we, most of us have forgotten to be praying for Egypt, and yet a year ago, Egypt was every day in the news. Now, it's still going through the news, but we're not paying as much attention to it, because yeah. we have kind of a short attention span. Well, and the new technology, too, you know, where uh, heretofore it might have taken months for the news to arrive from overseas and be disseminated across the spans of a country like the United States, uh, typically by word of mouth, uh, 
telegraph to a degree and, and, and the printed page now happens in the matter of seconds and as quickly as it comes, it's also uh, just as quickly replaced by something else. Uh, you, you made reference to the idea that we might be able to make some changes, we might be able to have some influence, but I have to wonder, uh, as Christians living in this modern world with all that's going on around us, as we speak to that notion of being globally Concerned. Is this something that is an option for some believers, or does it really kind of narrow down to being a mandate? Well, it depends on what Bible you're going to use. <laughs> I mean, frankly, if you look in the Scriptures, you cannot escape the fact that God's vision, God's view is for the world and for His people, because for whatever mysterious reason God has chosen to do His work in the world through people, broken people, forgiven people like you and me, and every one of us has some degree of responsibility. In other words, the mandate, since you used that word, that Jesus gave before He ascended into heaven, you know, to make disciples of all nations, or to preach the gospel to all creation, or to... Uh, to be, you know, preach the gospel beginning in Jerusalem to all the nations. I mean, all those things, that they still um, remain for each Christian today. And our question is not where we are sent. I'm sorry, our question is not if we are sent into the world. The question is where. And, you know, opening our eyes to the global realities that God said in the Psalms, you know, declare my glory to the nations, my wonderful deeds to all peoples. That's still binding on us today. It's not a matter of just, you know, tucking ourselves away in our safe little bubble and uh, and thanking God that we have a nice, prosperous life. It's about looking out into the world and saying, what difference can I make that God has unique me, uh, uniquely equipped me for? Today, we're talking about uh, what it means to be a world-class Christian. Uh, let me be careful that we didn't say a worldly Christian. A lot of folks have got that down pat. We're talking about being a world-class Christian. And with us is best-selling author Paul Brothwick. We're going to come back after a brief timeout, dive a little bit deeper in here, you know, as we talk about the way in which uh, television and satellite and the Internet and technology has uh, has brought us closer together. I wonder if it's also made us easier to be more uh, spectators as to what is going on in the world around us, as opposed to being participants. We'll dive into that question as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Recent polls have shown a fifth of Americans can't locate the U.S. on a world map. Why do you think this is? I personally believe that U.S. Americans are unable to do so because uh, some people out there in our nation don't have maps and uh, I believe that our ed- education like such as in South Africa and uh, the Iraq everywhere like such as and I believe that they should uh, our education over here in the U.S. should help the U.S. or should help South Africa and should help the Iraq and the Asian countries so we will be able to build up our future for our children. 
Thank you very much. Oh, yeah, we thank you very much. That that tortured answer, as much as we listen to it, also demonstrative of a huge need for uh, deeper education. When you begin to realize that beyond the notion that uh, fewer than three in ten graduates thinks it's important to know the locations of countries in the news, and fully 66% can't even find Iraq or Saudi Arabia on a map, that a large percentage of them even can't uh, can't even find America. Of course, I guess they lack maps. And call Google on that one, would you? I, it just is demonstrative of what seems to be a greater level of global connectivity, and yet we're we're not even participating. We're just kind of very casual spectators to it all at many levels. We're visiting today with best-selling author Paul Brothwick. His new book is called How to Be a World-Class Christian, Becoming Part of God's Global Kingdom. Uh, Paul, that, that tortured answer there from uh, a, a beauty pageant contestant a couple of years ago, certainly uh, troubling in terms of just the notion of the, of the level of, of, of disconnectivity at a day and an age when, quite frankly, staying connected and being educated and, and being able to participate is easier now than it ever was before. Well, I've, I've had an elder at our church ask us, uh, what is the capital of Africa? And, uh, and you know, if you don't get that that's a, uh, a joke, it's, there are 53 or 55 countries in Africa, each with their own capital. You know, and yet he thinks of Africa as a country, not as a continent, you know. And, yeah, it's, it's kind of scary. Um, I oftentimes ask... Um, people who are either new to this country or international students, what's the stupidest question that an American has ever asked you? And I had a student this past semester from Malawi, southeastern Africa, and um, and I asked him what is the stupidest question, and they they somebody he was up in uh, Maine, not, not too far from us, and the church that he was hosted by asked him when he started wearing clothes. <laughs> All right, and and he thought it was a joke. Sure. So he said, well, when I came to New York, after I got through customs, I decided to buy some clothes. And the people were horrified, and he knew they weren't kidding, meaning that they didn't know. And he, because they were thinking, you know, he had come all the way over here buck naked and bought clothes on the other side of customs in New York City. <laughs> and yet they were, you know, and one of my uh, friends in Nigeria said he got so tired of Americans asking him how he learned English when Nigeria is an English-speaking country. And he said, uh, he said, finally, I got, I decided to tell him I was, I learned it on the plane on the flight <laughs> over, you know, but I mean, to be fair, and I, I, you know, I can be as critical as anybody about Americans' lack of geography knowledge, uh, but to be fair, there is hardly a place on planet Earth where you can travel for 3,000 continuous miles, speak one language, go to Denny's, you know, stay at Hampton Inn, ride on highways that look all remarkably the same in terms of their signposts and everything. So, I mean, in one sense, unlike a country like Luxembourg or Switzerland, where we're surrounded by three or four other language-speaking countries, you know, Americans can be pretty lazy about it. Now, I mean, obviously, um, the influx of Spanish speakers and Chinese speakers, Korean speakers, whatever, is changing some of that in our urban areas. But generally speaking, we don't have to learn about the other countries of the world. And many times I've traveled and people will say they know more about my country, meaning the USA, than I do. And sometimes they do because they are directly affected by the decisions that our government makes and decisions that our military makes. And I'm, you know, it's, it affects me somewhat, but not on a day-to-day basis, generally speaking. 
As the world is coming more to us, and, and as we certainly, as you've explained earlier, Paul, not been relieved of any obligation in terms of, you know, the, the perspective of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to Judea, Samaria, the other most parts of the earth, um, how can, how should Christians begin to develop uh, not just a Christian worldview, but how to become a world-class Christian? Well, I think one of the things that I advocate in the book is obviously cultivating some information, you know, learning about places, that that the Islam of Iran is not the same as the Islam of Iraq, for example. And, uh, and what's going on in Egypt affects the entire Arabic-speaking world. Or, you know, learning something about what uh, one article in Time magazine calls the upcoming Chindian century, and it's talking about how the economies of China and India will probably be more significant in the next hundred years than the USA. And wrestling with those kind of questions, even if we disagree with them, to just get some information that sort of rattles our cage a little bit. Because the United States, depending on whose statistics you use, is really only about 5% of the world's population. And so if God so loved the world, John 3.16 then there's a lot to be learned about the world that God loves outside of our own country, as well as within it. One very simple thing that I propose in the book, and in the time that we had on the radio, I want to make sure to say this, because every person, when you start thinking about the world, can feel pretty overwhelmed by it. So my number one creative idea, and I think it's the only one I've ever had, is Start your knowledge for the world by praying for the country on the label of your clothes. Okay? So when you take your clothes off, you change any pajamas or whatever tonight, take a look at it, see where it's made, and pray for that country. And I dare say that probably 90% of the clothes in your closet are made someplace else in the world. And you can start learning about them. You know, China's obviously going to be there. India, world's largest Hindu country. Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim country. And these places are touching us that way just to get us started thinking about the fact that the world is in our midst, starting with our own, our own wardrobe. And as we pointed out earlier, and, and the world is coming to us, and so the ability to be educated, to be sensitive, particularly as we take into consideration uh, religious differences, cultural viewpoints, uh, can only help but to make us not only more sensitive, but more effective when it comes to sharing the gospel. Yeah, and, and I believe, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of debates about immigration and unregistered people and illegal aliens and all this other stuff. But in, very, in one very specific Christian perspective on it is, I want people to abide by the law. That's not my point. But they're here, and maybe God brought them here so they could hear the gospel from us. As one Toronto pastor said, Toronto is probably the most international city in, US, in, in, the, uh, in North America. Uh, and he, he's a Toronto pastor, and he said, uh, God commanded us to go to all the nations. We didn't go, so he's bringing all the nations to us. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you can go down to Southern California and meet a scad of people from, uh, from Iran. They'll call themselves Persians, but they're from Iran, and many of them are adherents to Shiite Islam or to uh, Zoroastrianism, a religion from Iran. And they may have never heard the gospel till they came to come to this country. And if we don't reach out to them, they may still never hear the gospel. And it's just, you know, an amazing uh, opportunity that God's given us. Uh, one, one quick uh, lesson that I learned from one of my professors he said, when you're walking down the street, let's say in the Bay Area, you're walking down, 
you know, uh, streets in San Francisco, and you see a man uh, with his wife, she has a headscarf on, or, you know, there's something about their attire that tells you the distinctively some other religion. Maybe he has, he has the turban on, and he tells you, tells you he's a Sikh. He says, he says, pray as you pass by that person, just breathe a prayer, shoot up a prayer on behalf of that person. He said, you might be praying for someone who's never been prayed for in Jesus' name before in their whole lives. Mm-hmm. And you're bringing that person before Jesus for the first time. And I mean, think of that as you know, what a staggering opportunity that we have when the people have come to our country because they're finding this is the place for you know, uh, a better economic future. But why not help give them a better eternal future? We mentioned earlier that in addition to just taking the time to get educated in something simple as maybe saying, uh, you know, let's see where my shirt was made. Google the name, look at the country, pray for that country tonight. Um, you, you talk to a lot in the book about uh, um, being able to get a, a focus on being globally aware. Certainly, compassion fatigue sometimes can be a challenge, as we lightly touched on earlier. But when we bring this whole thing together, how do you believe that God wants us to develop, to develop this, this Christian worldview, how to become uniquely a world-class Christian? Well, I think that uh, it has something to do with a phrase that I picked up off a bumper sticker. I don't even think it was Christian by nature, but it said, it said think globally, act locally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think that's a great summary of what I'm after in my own life, you know, as well as uh, in encouragement in this book, to, to realize that, A, we're part of a global Christian family, so when the church suffers in, I'll use Egypt, since I referred to that earlier, uh, that my family is suffering, you know, so I, I'm thinking about that. But I'm also acting locally so that when I meet the uh, Egyptian guy at the medical clinic, uh, I, I'm aware of the fact that, you know, I might be reaching out to someone that my friends in Egypt have never been able to reach. And so, you know, it's all a matter of a mindset. It's going into the day. I mean, just this morning I was uh, preparing my breakfast and remembered to pray for Columbia, South America, because when I picked the sticker off of the bananas, uh, it, it was actually harvested in Columbia. It says it right there on the sticker. You know, just sort of keeping aware of the fact that there's a bigger world than just the world that I'm in. And, you know, many many people are struggling with the economics of the, t- the situation today. Maybe they're in a unemployment situation or underemployment but just trying to get past ourselves a little bit to realize there's a big world out there and uh, we have an awesome God and we need to get plugged into thinking of ourselves as his agents in this world, whether we're in the unemployment line or we're in the gas station talking to somebody who might have just come here from another country. Get a copy of Paul's book. This will open your eyes and help you develop more of this sense of that Christian worldview. How to be a world-class Christian becoming part of God's Global Kingdom, and our thanks to Paul Bothwick for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Imagine this. America Today, as we speak, has $100 billion in student loan debt. 
$90 billion outstanding in automobile loans. You look at some of the prices coming out of Detroit and elsewhere, not surprised. $50 billion in credit card debt. And consumer debt overall, this is unsecured debt, $3.2 trillion. I guess it's no surprise, therefore, that 65% of divorce decrees in the United States today are because of finances. At the end of the day, irresponsible money management is something that we all learn. Well, if that be the case, then how can we have the talk, the conversation with our children so that we learn them properly when it comes to money management? Joining me now is Scott and Bethany Palmer, authors of The Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Stage. And Scott and Bethany, welcome to both of you. Well, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Now, I'm curious with your own family. Um, what prompted you to decide and at what age that this was a conversation you needed to have with the kids? Well, that's a great question. Um, for the really last 10 years, Bethany and I have been working with couples all over the world when it comes to love and money and the conversations that we need to have as couples. And we were constantly getting asked, well, how do we talk to our kids about this? Um, we're actually the creators of something called the five money personalities, and we have a pretty amazing assessment online for individuals and couples to take to be able to understand who they are and what their money personalities are. And so we were being constantly asked, how do we deal with our kids and how do we deal with our kids? So that put us on a journey to really figure out and try to understand what, what we're dealing with. We have currently a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old, so, or 11-year-old, so we're in the middle of this whole parent thing. And, and what we found in kind of the way that we made our book really applicable to parents is that we found that every age is a little different. So really, starting at age five, we need to start having conversations with our kids. And what we found between the ages of five and 12, is when kids become entitled. Then you jump into the teenage years, and between 13 and 17 is when we can, and a lot do, teach their kids to be materialistic. And then what we found 18 and beyond, 18 to 25, but you know we've got literally 35-year-olds still living in mom and dad's basement, is that 18 to 25 is when they become what we call financially dependent. And so we're dealing with three different age groups, we're dealing with different conversations that need to take place in those, age, in those different ages because we're really addressing three different major issues which every parent is facing. Yeah, and this seems to be, Bethany, so obvious in the sense that I think all parents recognize early on that their child's personalities are, are shaped and, and molded. Part of that is a product of environment and their own personalities and so forth. So if their overall personality is developed at such an early age, why not their personality, quote-unquote, related to money or how they, how they grow up viewing money, relating to money, and, and uh, the role that money p- plays in their lives? Well, it's interesting. God talks about money more than just about any other subject in the Bible because he knew how much it was going to impact us every day. A lot of times people think money just impacts us on our financial planning, making sure we have our insurance and retirement, investments and taxes and estate planning all taken care of. Those are all very important. But what the truth of the matter is, is you have everyday decisions that you have to make very quickly when it comes to money. Simple things like, are you going to go out to eat? 
or, or bag or brown bag your lunch? Are you going to go to and get an expensive cup of coffee or are you going to brew it at home? And our children are going to be and are starting at very young ages dealing with the same exact thing. And so what, has to, what we have found is that it can be such an encouragement to children to really understand their perspective of money, which we have, we can talk about here and flesh this out a little bit. We can, we say with our whole heart, we know that God made our money personalities. Are they impacted by our parents? Yes, but, but the way we look at money, and we have some examples we can share here in a little bit, but with that being said, we as parents better understand our own children's two money personalities and then with that in mind, how encouraging it is to have these conversations. Because everybody knows what kind of conversations maybe you should have, but how do you have them in a way that your children will hear them and not re- rebel against them? Well, and maybe even a bigger sort of preliminary question for parents, and this, uh, Scott, I imagine is a difficult one for well, perhaps not all parents, certainly a good percentage of them based on the statistics I cited a moment ago. And that is, you know, every parent is nervous about the time coming when they have to have the talk. Now, usually that's birds and the bees. The talk. Yeah. And, and, and the birds and the bees talk, I would imagine for some parents, might even come easier. And I, and I, I phrase it that way, Scott, for this reason. Having the conversation with your children about money, their money personality, their relationship to money, and what that's going to look like when they move into their adult life, uh, doesn't it require some introspection in terms of of the parent getting a handle on their own money personality? Because let's face it, there are spenders and there are savers, and you walk through all of these different money personalities. Well, what happens when you're a parent trying to sit down with um, your child and lecture he or she on what it means to be a saver when, in fact, the one doing the lecturing is a dyed-in-the-wool, card-certified spender? Well, I mean, that, that is a great point because what what often happens is we naturally try to make our kids like our money personality is. And so if you're by chance, let's say maybe you're a, uh, you're a primary, we have two money personalities, but let's say you're a primary saver and your kid is a primary spender. You're always going to be making comments like, you know, well, that money just burns a hole in your pocket within a matter of minutes, or you need to have a savings plan. And part of what we tried to do with our book was say, hey, how do you talk when your money personalities are different? than your kids, and, and even more importantly, how do you talk to your kids when maybe you've made some money mistakes? Because we've all made money mistakes, but I think everybody listening would agree those are great learning opportunities, too, for our kids. If we can say, hey, listen, this is what your mom and I did. ended up being a bad, a bad decision that we made, but this is how we corrected it, and this is how we got out of it. Because when you start having those conversations, and when you start not only speaking to their money personality, but also being vulnerable with where you've succeeded and where you've failed, that's where really the communication can begin. And I think often what happens is we think as parents we're supposed to just, you know, give this huge amount of wisdom to our children and they're just going to look at us in awe and be like, wow, mom and dad really have all this money stuff figured out. It's not going to happen. Let me give you an example. Um, I have a son who is a primary spender. And so we don't use we don't even use words like um, save money. We have a future spending plan set up for him. That's the kind of language that he is going to understand. And, you know, I think of um, my relationship with my mom, and we could not be on more opposite side of the spectrum. 
I'm a primary spender and secondary risk taker. So I'm kind of on that spender risk taker side. She is on the totally other side of the spectrum. She's a saver security seeker. And we butted heads so much growing up because those little money decisions would come up. Like perfect example, I was a competitive swimmer, nationally ranked swimmer. Swimming was a big part of my life. And my coach told me that I needed to get this new swimsuit. And my mom gave me, I mean, it was expensive. And my mom just gave me the biggest, made the biggest deal out of that. It really, in retrospect, wasn't that much money, but to her it was because she's a saver and savers, I mean, that you can never save enough money for a saver. And so really it made me feel like I wasn't worth buying that swimsuit. Mm. So there's a lot of, we, cannot, we can be unintentional consequences of not understanding your child's money personalities is you are putting them down, squelching them of who they are and how they've been uniquely made and you don't even know it. And that's where the challenge is, is, you know, parents think, oh, well, I need to teach them this or that. But if you're teaching them in a way that they can hear it, that they can relate to it, that it makes sense to them because of the way that they were uniquely made and the way that they perceive money. You know, we all, we all, not all of us have a real healthy relationship when it even comes to money. You know, money is something that, that we work with and we talk about like I said, a little bit every single day. And if we don't have ourselves figured out and then we don't understand our children, we're do, like I said, unintended consequences are happening and really impacting our, our relationships with our children. On Not today's to- edition of Lifeline, a look at the five money conversations to have with your kids at every age and every stage. By the way, we've got four complimentary copies of the book we're going to be giving out here coming up just momentarily. Meanwhile, we'll take a pause, get you updated on some traffic. When we come back, if it's true that opposites attract, how problematic can that be for not only children, but eventually when they grow up to be adults in married life? We'll get to that part of the equation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Scott and Bethany Palmer with us today. They're known as the Money Couple. We're talking about their latest book, The Five Money Conversations to Have with Your Kids at Every Age and Stage. And let's talk about this notion of opposites attract. We always hear that when it comes to relationships. And I'm wondering how problematic is that certainly later in life when, you know, as you were suggesting before the break, Bethany, uh, boy, you get a husband and wife team together and one is the spender risk taker combination. The other is the saver security saker. Wow. That can really <laughs> create quite a firestorm. That and you're I, not kidding. And, oh, and I would imagine the earlier in life, the kids recognize who they are, what their personality looks like, the easier it will be later in life, relationally speaking, to deal with all that. You know, it is so true. You know, we always say, Scott and I always say, opposites attract, but then you get married and opposites attack. Mm. And the problem is when the money conversations come up or, or decisions that you need to make about money, money um, that decisions that you need to make that involve money, that's where the problems happen. And then they, the conflict happens all the time. The more opposite you are, the more challenges you're going to have. And you are so correct. If you can understand this as a young child, it's so fun. Our, our children starting at age seven is when they started to really understand what their money personalities and say things to us like, like, Mom, you're a risk taker, so 
don't you want to do that? You know, it's amazing to us how at such young age, how kids can learn these things and think about how uh, the next generation of marriages, how much healthier they can be because they understand this. Now, we're not saying that you can't marry your opposite because most of the time we're attracted to it. As a matter of fact, oftentimes it makes you a better person. It's a more exciting relationship. The, chal- the thing is, though, is if you realize this, and then when those challenges come up, you know where they're coming from, and you're not putting the person down, you're, you're, you're trying to deal and understand their many personalities. Now, now, some listening right now might be thinking, well, this, this makes sense, okay, so it, there's not a prohibition against it, but probably life would be easier if instead of marrying the opposite, we married the equal. But I have to wonder, Scott, if that is not, we're out with problems as well. For example, if you get two spender risk takers together, my goodness, that's <laughs> that's yeah. going to mean there's never any money in the house. Or that's right. That's right. They, they will instantly help that three point trillion dollars. <laughs> yes, it in, will. Your debt. So yeah, yep, and, and that's right. that's a great point mm-hmm. that um, we need to make. We we do a lot of uh, premarital counseling with couples, and sometimes they'll take the money personality assessment, and they'll be like, "We have four money personalities. Are we going to survive?" And we say, "Absolutely," because really those differences can really become your strengths inside your relationship. The spender, if they're married to a saver, they both have really positive points of their money personality and really negative points of their money personality. But if they can get those money personalities in balance, if they can learn, okay, this is why and how I personally deal with money, and here's my relationship with money. Oh, and now I have this other person, and they have a different relationship with money. So not only are they getting themselves in check, but they're also understanding who their spouses are. That's how they can really have a really healthy, what we call a money-healthy relationship. And what we find is that couples that get married that have the same money personalities are much, are much more less likely to argue. Bethany and I's primary money personalities are both spenders. So if she goes and spends money, uh, we don't usually have an argument about that or tension. Where our tension hits is that she's a risk taker and I'm a security seeker. Secondarily. Secondarily. So we have the opportunity. That's where we have conflicts. And so it's just really important to know that, uh, what those money personalities are because your kids are going to be modeled how you communicate about money. And that's really important to understand. The kids are watching everything. We've had about 60,000 people take this assessment online. And of that 60,000, the, the percentage of married couples that took it, 80% of those had an opposite dynamic in their relationship. So 80% of the married couples that we surveyed had a, a different opposite money personality. So you, you talk about a, a 65% divorce rate. Actually, what we found is statistically the divorce rate is between 48 and 55%, depending on who you're using. But 70% of all divorces the number one reason that was listed was conflicts over money. And so when we found that 80% of of couples were married to their money opposite, we weren't surprised at all Mm -mm. with that 70%. So here's the great thing. Here's the encouraging thing. The encouraging thing is that you can succeed in a relationship, that once you understand who you are, you've got a much better chance of understanding who your spouse is. Once you have a much better chance of understanding how your spouse is, then you can get on the same page and you can have an amazing family that understands that open communication about money is good. Mom and dad 
don't always see eye to eye about money, but they know how to communicate about it, and then your kids can trust. And this also means that we have a greater degree of responsibility, don't we, as parents, in the sense that, you know, we're typically thinking about providing them with a good moral foundation. We take them to church. We make sure that they get a decent education, prepare them for life, things of that sort. But it makes the money talk, apparently, Scott, all that more important because what you're really doing is setting a a foundation not only for that child's economic health and well-being later on in life, but their marital health and well-being as well. So now all of a sudden, conversations over um, allowances, for example, and do you get it or do you earn it, that suddenly becomes a very important discussion. Absolutely. And, and what we find is, uh, what we have found is that often parents exclude their, their conversations um, about allowance. So what you've really got really to figure out is your kid's money personality so that you have so that, that you have the opportunity to speak into them. So, for instance, my 11-year-old um, is a primary spender. And at about the age of, of um, eight, what we decided we would do as a family with allowances, really from five to eight, five to nine, we, didn't, uh, we gave them an allowance, and now they earn their money. And so the cool thing that we created for, for parents, because we were like kind of trying to figure out, okay, how's the best way to make a decision or figure out how, who our kids' money personalities are. So what we did was we started looking at all these different age groups. We started coming up with questions, and we started watching the kids to help parents figure out how to assess their children when it came to their money personalities. So like a big one was Easter candy. We watched how kids interacted with their Easter candy. Some saved it, some consumed it quickly, some traded it, some had a plan on their consumption, and some gave it to their friends. Each of those ways of dealing with candy is reflection of their money personality. So what we did um, with the five conversations to have with your kids at every age and stage was we put a code on the back of the book, and we actually created a money personality assessment from 5 to 12. We created a separate money personality assessment for 13 to 18, and we created another money personality assessment for 18 and beyond. And so parents can actually buy the book, Scratch off the foil um, on the back of the book, and you get five assessments per book, five free assessments per purchase of the book. So you can actually sit down with your kids, take, watch them take the assessment. Five to 12-year-olds need a little bit more directions. The teenagers take the ball and run. No problem. And 18 and beyond take the ball and run. And it will actually give you their money personalities. Then what you can do is you can look at the, the conversations that we outline in the book. Okay, so let's talk about allowance. How do you talk about allowance to a spender? How do you talk about allowance to a saver? How about a risk taker? How about a flyer? How about a security seeker? So we actually help parents based on the kids' money personalities talk about things like allowance, extracurricular activities um, for our teenagers. Yeah, the give-me's for the little ones. For our teenagers, technology, I mean, the peer pressure behind having the perfect clothes, having the perfect technology, being in every extracurricular activity that you can possibly come up with. So we actually help parents talk to their kids, but you're actually speaking the child's language. And, and you know what I love about this is it, there, there, there's a stroke, a stroke of genius here, uh, <laughs> Bethany and Scott, there really is, because parents today are beginning to realize, for example, in the arena of discipline, that it needs to be unique to the child's personality. Some parents understand you have a child and simply sending them to bed without dinner does not get the message through. 
Right. And yet another child with whom you discipline by saying, I'm taking away the car keys, no, you can't go to the movies this weekend, or we're locking up your video game, may work for some children, may not work for others. Absolutely. So this, this, this one-size-fits-all approach that we've tried to do when it comes to parenting, particularly as it relates to money, I think the clear results of how how much it's not working is in the divorce rates that we spoke of earlier. It's in the amount of consumer indebtedness that we have and the manner in which not only we, we manage money as a people, but listen, 17 heading toward $18 trillion debt. I want to tell you something there, too. And, you know, let's let's talk after the break about the whole issue, for example, of how we handle at the earliest ages your allowance. Now, when I was growing up, my dad had a bit of a philosophy when it came to allowance. Um, he said that uh, he was going to take sort of a, an approach that would help me hopefully someday grow up to be a Roosevelt Democrat. And by that, he meant that you got money from the government, but you had to work for it. That's as opposed to a Johnson Democrat, where you get money from the government, you're entitled to it. We'll take a time out, talk a bit more about the whole issue of money personalities and how to have those five money conversations with your kids. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. 